The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. My next guest was described by uh, John Lloyd, formerly a, a guest on this show there just before Christmas, as having been a man of reinvention, that he had reinvented himself, I think, three times with John Lloyd's assessment over the course of his career. Because he went from being DJ to being um, stage performer to being huge TV success as a hypnotist and ultimately then becoming the author of tens of millions of self-help books, the uh, latest of which has just been published and he's touring uh, with it, the book being Success for Life. He's going to be in the Pavilion in Dublin in March. That's the 19th and 20th of March. The author, of course, is Paul McKenna. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Anton. Lovely to be with you. Can I go back to those TV shows, Paul? Because there's, there's been a lot of fuss recently about the return of gladiators and people have cast their minds nostalgically back to the early 90s when the whole family would gather and there'd be millions in terms of ratings for shows and you had these big um, TV vehicles, of which yours was one. Your show back then was huge. Yes, it was the most viewed entertainment show uh, on all of... Uh, British television in the uh, in 1993, I think it was, and, and across the world, you know, it played everywhere. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I loved doing those shows. I loved um, using hypnosis for, for comedy and fun. And, you know, of course, um, I was getting people to do daft things, to dance like a ballerina or think a broom was their favourite supermodel and chat the broom up and maybe kiss it or something. And um, I think it was really sort of harmless fun, you know, particularly... If you look at, say, the reality shows of today where people are put in <clears throat> little boxes with snakes or asked to eat all kinds of uh, very strange things. So, yeah, the 90s was was a, um, a very interesting era for television. And, and I loved Gladiators. I, I loved a lot of the shows that were popular in those days. Had to be a lot of pressure for you, I can only imagine, though, because for most people with a stage show, what you do is you have one set show and you change out the audience as you tour. You were in the opposite position. You had one set audience and you had to keep changing out the show. That's very difficult for a solo performer. It, yes, you know, you're right. And the pressure to come up with new material, because television just, you know, devours it. And, and it's not like you, you know, you come up with something really great and you can, as you say, tour it around the country. Every week you have to have a whole new set. And comedians say this, that, you know, they once they've done their jokes, that's it. They're, they're done. Um, and the audience know them, so they have to come up with a whole new set. So <clears throat> to have a you know a life of three or four, I think it was four years I did it for, um, was hard work, but it was great fun, and I, and I loved it. I mean, it feels like it was forever ago. It, it was 30 years ago. Um, but it's almost like a previous life. But it goes to that point that John, John Lloyd made about your, your reinvention. What's strange about the way that you came to that is... You did not do the thing of being a teenager, applying your trade in the working men's clubs and eventually getting the big break onto TV. You had had the big break. You were uh, presenting and DJing. You had been on Capital Radio. You were on BBC. You were successful at a thing and decided, I'll make a complete pivot and go in a different direction. Not many do that. You know, you're right. Um, I I was very happy being a DJ. And... uh, I interviewed the local hypnotist when I was working in local radio and I'd had a bad day. You know, I'd bust up with my girlfriend, around my boss, the people in the apartment where I lived were keeping me up at night. And I went to see the local hypnotist to interview him. And he said, you know, rather than you interview me, I think I should do it to you. And so um, I relaxed very skeptically, I must say. And suddenly all my burdens lifted and I felt calm and peaceful. And I could think clearly. 
And I came out of this trance, which I thought had been like two minutes, but had been half an hour. And I said, I feel fantastic. Have you got any books on this? And he lent me a book and I read it and I thought, oh, I, I see how this works. So I'd be at a party and I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm learning hypnosis. And someone would say, well, it won't work on me. And I'd go, well, shall we find out? And I'd have them up dancing like a ballerina or something. And then I thought, well, what if I can help people quit smoking and lose weight and overcome anxiety and things like that? And it worked pretty much every time. So I then sort of became obsessed with it. So I was a DJ by day and a hypnotist at night. And, you know, I'd work doing, you know, events, you know, um, clubs and pubs and places like that, do, doing my shows. And then eventually I worked the way up to, to theatres. And there came a point where I had to decide whether I wanted to be a DJ. And by that time, I'd got to Radio 1, which was a huge deal. And I thought, nope, it's a hypnotist. I want to be a hypnotist. I asked myself this question, what would I do if I knew I couldn't fail? And I thought, I'll be a hypnotist. I'll be on TV. I'd tour the world. I'd work with um, all kinds of amazingly talented, sort of successful people. I'd write books. I'd, you know, I, everything I'm doing now, basically. But take and those last bits, Paul, because there, there, there is, that sounds like they all neatly line up and are conjoined and overlapping, but they're, they're not native bedfellows. The, the being a touring hypnotist and having a TV show is one thing. Segwaying then into self-help and coaching isn't necessarily an obvious shift. And I would have thought it was a fairly challenging shift because if people see you as the funny entertainer, it's not an immediate logical step to say, and he's the guy that I want to help me feel better about my life. You're 100% right. Um, so what happened was, even though I was selling out theatres around the world, you know, and I'm on television, I'm also sitting, working one-to-one -one or in small groups with people, helping them with their problems. And I thought to myself, I, I, you know, people are not going to take me seriously as a therapist, as a clinician, if I'm getting them to you know, dance like a ballerina. So about um, more than 20 years ago, I quit the comedy shows. So the, I was a DJ in the 80s. I was a comedy hypnotist in the 90s. And then by the noughties, I'd become uh, um, a, a modern psychologist clinician. And I, <clears throat> I either work one-to-one -one with people or I work with, you know, in groups. And I wrote a book not expecting it to be a big hit or anything, just because I felt I had a book in me called Change Your Life in Seven Days. And this book somehow smashed all around the world, international bestseller. And my publishers then said, you're not going anywhere, mate. We want some more of these. And I'm really a talker rather than a writer. But for some reason, people like my books. They find them easy to understand because I write popular psychology. And um, and they report that they, they get a significant change from reading a book and, and doing the exercises. Plus, all of my books come with um, a hypnotic trance. So you download that for free onto your phone or your computer. And then you've got me on tap 24 hours a day to help you. Now, is it financially rewarding, Paul? Because the, the life of a radio presenter is, is one of vocation more than it is one of remuneration. But I assume that during the TV years, you were making huge coin. Do you ever think, I wouldn't mind now going back to a Saturday Night ITV gig just so that I can retire to Rio? Well, actually, yes, I am rich, but I'm not just wealthy. <laughs> I'm rich because I'm, I have health. I have friends and family that love me. I uh, get to decide mostly what I do each day. I um, get to do what I love, actually, which is 
creative work, you know. Even doing and you're neck deep in cash is the sense that I get as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I yes, I actually, I have a huge training organization. Right now, I have the largest hypnotherapy training organization in the world. Myself and a company called Mind Valley, who are the largest um, self-improvement, uh, online self-improvement company. We teach people in four months how to be a hypnotherapist and to do the things that most people go see hypnotherapists for, losing weight, quitting smoking, overcoming phobias, et cetera. And, um, and so, yes, I, I, I make a good living from it. But being rich is more than just having money. In fact, uh, Bob Marley famously said, some people are so poor, all they have is money. <laughs> and I think being rich is about being healthy, being loved, having a purpose, you know, and enjoying what it is you do, having friends and family, um, in, you know, loving your career and, and, and being sort of generally happy. From, uh, from day to day. Well, you cite that instance in Success for Life of, of talking to a man of immense wealth who was permanently ratty because he had a number in his head that he wanted the bank balance to get to and until it was there, he was yeah. dissatisfied no matter how, how rich he was. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was basically putting off his happiness until he'd achieved a number. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people do that. They think, oh, I'll be happy when I've dropped 10 pounds or, you know, when I've met that perfect person or whatever it is. And uh, what we know from research is that, for example, in relationships, the happier you are in yourself, the more likely you are to find somebody to have a functional relationship with. So basically, happiness is an inside-out job. When you make yourself happier and sort yourself out, then then somehow all the world turns in your favour. Talk to me a little bit about um, some of the principles on which you base uh, aspects of your teaching in the book. One of the ones that I was intrigued by, by in Success for Life was how much you refer to neuro-linguistic programming because I would have thought in recent years neuro-linguistic programming has come in for a fair degree of, of scepticism and criticism. You're still a big believer. Well, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, refers to neurobrain linguistic, you know, way of communicating language and programming. Just as a human being has, um, you know, habits or programs that we use each day, like opening a door or shaking hands, and a computer does have programs. You know, we, we, we do. So the thing is that NLP is used by, in some form or other by most therapists in the world right now, by governments, by politicians, by advertisers, because it's an advanced psychological technology. And yes, some of it um, uh, is a little controversial because people use it in sales. So people go, well, is it manipulative, you know, to be getting people to buy things they don't want? Um, <clears throat> you don't have to be an expert in NLP uh, to get people to do things they don't want to do. And, you know, politicians, advertisers, cult leaders do that all the time. NLP is a technology, it's a tool, just like a pen. You know, you could use a pen to write poetry or you could stab someone with it. You know, it doesn't, it's not inherently good or bad, but NLP in terms of therapy is probably the most advanced psychological therapy in the world right now. But does it stand up well to scientific scrutiny? Oh, yes. If you look at the studies into NLP, I mean, it's phenomenal. And look at look at who uses NLP. Every major sports star in the world now has a success coach that uses some NLP. Barack Obama, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, all massive fans of NLP, all use NLP to style their communication. Now, whether you agree with their politics or not is another thing, but you wouldn't be able to deny that they are fantastic communicators and a large part of that is their NLP skills. But that's not something they have said publicly, is it? They've said it, yeah, yeah. They've admitted it publicly. Barack Obama has said that he is a, a, a fan of NLP. 
yes, yes. Tony Blair himself told me he uses NLP. Uh, and Bill Clinton was coached by Tony Robbins to use NLP. In that scheme of things, the well, you mentioned Tony Robbins, the um, gigs that you now do, because you're coming to the Pavilion in Dublin on the 19th and 20th of March, What's the, the sort of the expectation and the reaction to you of that audience? Do people arrive expecting the TV hypnotist Paul McKenna or is it the audience for the books that arrives or a combination of both? Well, uh, people have come to what's what I would describe as uh, a coaching event, right? So they've come to either experience a change in their life, uh, get more control over their thoughts and feelings. You see, Success and happiness are not accidents that just sort of randomly happen to some people and not others. Success and happiness are created by certain ways of thinking and acting. And over the last 30, 40 years, I've had the opportunity to study people who are super successful in business, in the arts, in sports, etc., and codify the ways that they think that make them successful. And so in the 90-minute session, what I do is I, I, I ask people to help me with a demonstration. So I'll say, right, who's frightened of public speaking? You know, and a whole load of hands go up. So I'll say, how about you, madam, come and join me? And some, some lady nervously walks on the stage. Two minutes later, she's completely confident, holds the mic, speaks to the audience like she's speaking to friends. And then I turn to the audience and I say, look, you see what we did just there? Very, very simple. Why don't we all do that? Think about a person or a situation that throws us a bit off balance, makes us anxious, and do this process and the anxiety disappears. And so imagine over 90 minutes, I do another and another and another thing to give people more power, more clarity, more determination to go for what it is they want in life. I hypnotize the entire audience. So by the end of the evening, not only have you got tools and techniques you can take away with you that'll make you feel more in control of your life, but also you feel like you're on a natural high. And then the real work begins. I do selfies with everybody. <laughs> so I spend about an hour doing selfies with 500 people. Now, explain one thing to me about the, the um, how hypnosis works. My understanding is that if somebody, if you, if you can get somebody to acquiesce to being in a trans state, you can get them to do behaviours within, to some extent, the parameters of that which they think is morally acceptable. Is that is that effectively it? You can't get somebody to do something that would be inimical to what they are like as a person normally. Well, yes, that's true uh, in a sense, because, yes, generally with hypnosis, people don't do things that violate their morals or values. However, can you convince something to do some things? Can you convince somebody to do something that isn't in their best interests Absolutely not necessarily using hypnosis. You know, look at the things that people do in the name of religion or or some cult ideology. Look at unscrupulous salespeople or politicians who convince us to do things that are not in our best interest but theirs. So getting people to do things that are immoral, um, that's been going on since the beginning of time. You don't need hypnosis for that. Last thing then about hypnosis, if you put in a little timer, how long can you have a hypnotic effect post-trance? So if somebody's been hypnotized and you say, okay, in the middle of next week, you're going to think you're a duck. Is that too long a time frame? Can you do weeks? Can you do months? No, a good suggestion lasts forever. For example, tell me your name. Me, Anton. Anton, how do you know? Uh, Bertzard. Because you know, somebody once told you your name's Anton, right? Correct. Not everyone by calling you Anton. So it reinforced that your name is Anton. That suggestion went in early on in your life and it'll be with you forevermore. Now, some people 
um, they'll say to me, oh, I went to see a hypnotist to quit smoking and it didn't work. So I say, what, not, not even for five minutes? They go, oh, no, I went to two months without smoking. I went, well, if you can quit for two months, you can quit for <laughs> two years or 20 years, right? So sometimes a suggestion goes in, in that moment. Like, you know, for example, if you say to a child at an impressionable age, be quiet, no one wants to hear what you have to say, that can go in with the power of a hypnotic suggestion. And then that child will be uh, frightened of public speaking. Whereas if you say, hey, you're a really interesting guy and people love to, to you know, to hear what it is you say, you have done the opposite. Uh, you've installed a suggestion because up until the age of seven, the things that are said to us by authority figures at moments of emotional intensity have the power of a hypnotic suggestion. And so as Aristotle said, I think the Jesuits claim it too, give me the boy before he's seven and I'll show you the man. There's a lot of truth in that. Last thing I have to ask you before I let you go, Paul, is when when you talk to somebody like this, when it's somebody you're used to seeing, but now you're just listening to them, you, of course, take a slightly different perspective. Um, and the one thing that I have to say is, you have a lovely voice. Is there any prospect of you returning to the radio? Well, do you know, firstly, thank you. I, I, I loved working uh, on the radio. I'm a little croaky today, but um, I, I really loved it. And occasionally I get asked offered a, a, a radio job. And the only thing is, I, I, I'm getting more and more tempted, I must admit, Anton. But I, I remember when I did it, I took it very seriously, and, I, and it was pressure. It was a job, right? And occasionally, um, I, I do a one-off show. I, I did one for Radio Caroline last year, and I did one for another station, just uh, for fun, right? But there's a part of me that, because my wife said to me the other day, why don't you you get a hobby. There's a part of me that thinks, ooh, I wouldn't mind doing one show at the weekend, once a week on a small station. So it would be, there wouldn't be too much pressure. And and, and I would love that. You know, I, I, I think radio is the most amazing medium. Unlike television, where whatever you do has to be really thought out and planned and everyone agree on it. And, you know, it's a big deal. With radio, you just open the microphone <clears throat> and you say what's on your mind. And you connect with the listener in a way that is quite intimate. And so for me, as, as a communication medium, radio is, is a beautiful thing. Plus, it, it, it only requires very low standards of personal hygiene and dress. <laughs> Paul, it has been a pleasure talking to you. That is the one and only Paul McKenna. Oh, thank you, Anton. God bless you. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.